Welcome to season six of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. This is where the truth is told in craft beer, quite possibly the only place. My job is to interview the breweries, distributors, and retailers on the front lines of craft beer all over the world. Not the ones that pretend they're successful while bleeding cash flow and profitability every month, but the honest ones that share the truth of their pain, their struggles, and their loss. With your help, we'll make this industry better by admitting when it's not, by pointing out the impossibility of the business model and the headwinds of the marketplace in every country all over the world. This season will be the most diverse one yet. We'll go back in time, across ocean and deeper into what we can do to prevent beer business disaster. So thank you for joining me on my quest to uncover how not to start a damn brewery. It, it really all came down to one day and my partner comes up to me and he's got this look on his face. And so I'm, I'm like, what, what the fuck is up, man? And he, he says to me, you know, we've got to talk. I think we have some tax debt. Of course, I'm like, well, what the fuck does that mean? It was like five grand? 10 grand? Holy shit, 20 grand? Like, what, what do we owe? And he tells me, well, <laughs> you know, my wife has the details, but I, I think it's about $100,000. And I don't know how to describe my emotions in that moment other than when people say gut punch. That may have been the moment that solidified the future of Oregon's flat tail brewery. But the story of success, failure, embezzlement, money laundering, and rebirth on the timeline of Dave Marliov's craft beer career has so much more to teach us. So I sat down with Dave to discuss what he's felt, what he's learned, and how you can protect yourself from thieving partners and monopolistic distributors. While the public demise of Flat Tail still swings in the breeze as one of craft beer's bloodiest white-collar true crime cases, the rise of New Spring and Dave's impressive technical achievements are an inspiring look at how we can all make this industry better. And here is the story of Dave Marliov, the late Flat Tail Brewing, and the new New Spring Brewing. So Dave, I want to welcome you to the show. You um, are a unique guest that has a lot to share that, for better or for worse, we really haven't dug into much, so I know there's some pain and suffering on your part and that this is a big day, uh, but ultimately, I, I absolutely appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you for having me. Yeah, so... I've said this only a few other times in the podcast, but I will say it today. There is absolutely no way where I'm going to be able to ask all the questions and get to all the things I want to get to. So I'm going to do the best I can. And I do not want to bury the lead, but I really want to spend a lot of time getting into the, the, the big parts of the story of New Spring Brewery, about the last third and fourth segments. But let's, uh, let's foreshadow just a bit. Is New Spring Brewery still officially open or what's going on with that one? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay, uh, cool. So, you know, the, the brewery started as Flat Tail and really morphed into New Spring after COVID. Still up and running, no employees, it's just me, but uh, I, we do exist. Okay, well, I know you had some lawsuits in there, and, and just full disclosure, yeah. I had the same issue when I when I interviewed Lost yeah. Abbey. He hadn't posted on social media in like four months, and I was like, dude, do not go on my show and announce that you fucking closed down. I do not want that on my conscience, so... I was hoping that was the case. I don't know, man. That, that's a pretty good scoop from Tommy if that's what you're getting, right? <laughs> but that wasn't what I wanted him on the show for. That's a different episode completely. So, again, like I always say, that the goal is to kind of learn from what happens and what's gone wrong and what's gone right. But before we get too deeply into that, let's talk a little bit about who were you before. And so you started yeah. long ago, 2010 to 2009, looks like, as far as like when you first opened the Flat Tail Brewery. Well, who were you before mm-hmm. that? So I, I got into beer at an incredibly young age you know my mom actually kind of was the one who really got me into fermentation she used to always talk constantly when i was growing up about home brewing with her father 
and you know exploding bottles of beer out in the shed and you know they, they'd know the beer was done when they could see the suds going down the driveway it, it was one of the the few stories that she talked about frequently that really i don't know you know it was, it was a big deal for her in her childhood and so it was a big deal for me and mine had a very the, the stereotypical thing to say is kind of european outlook on beer as a kid my, my parents let me try it at the table I'd hear these stories from my mom. So I was always, from a very young age, interested in beer. And then I was going to Southern Oregon University, basically with with the goal of eventually getting into pre-law. My idea was that I had to make a bunch of money so I could own a brewery. <laughs> Good call. You know, that's, that's, yeah, right. That's the way you do it. I, I didn't know how right I was at the time. And then my uh, freshman year at SOU, my roommate came up to me one day and he's like, hey, you know, OSU has a program for brewing. And I, I'm sure he just wanted me to get the fuck out of the house. But uh, this information was a week later. I uh, borrowed, in, in quotes, my mom's minivan, drove all of my stuff up to Corvallis, crashed on a buddy's couch and ended up moving in there and uh, enrolled for the next uh, semester in fermentation science. And I did a year and a half, two years in the program. In that time, I went down to the local homebrew shop. I think it was, they're closed now, so I can say I was 19 when I started going in there. <laughs> the, the owner of Corvallis Brewing Supply is kind of a legend, uh, not just in Corvallis, but really in the state. He's, he's trained a huge number of homebrewers that have gone pro. He was my first kind of real mentor. And I just dove in as as hard as I could. Uh, I, I borrowed 500 bucks for my dad, the first of many brewery related loans, <laughs> and, and uh, set up a, you know, a, a half barrel homebrew system and basically bootlegged my way through that year and a half of college, making homebrew in the in the basement and, and brewing just four or five, six days a week. Uh, one of the first things Joel taught me was you can't be a good brewer until you know your ingredients and the best way to do that is to brew with every ingredient one at a time so i started with great western two row cascade and cal ale yeast and then i would change the malt one at a time until i brewed with everything in a shop and i did the same thing with hops and then yeast so did just a tremendous amount of home brewing which eventually got me my first Eigen trail brewery which uh, was recently bought by an old bartender of mine, but one of the longest standing breweries now in the state. My job interview was scrubbing the floors with caustic and a pair of slacks and a tie. And eventually they started paying me. I became the head brewer. And once I took over the operations there, that was when I, I had this sort of epiphany. And, uh, you know, I thought, hey, why am I paying all this money I don't have to go to college to get the job that I that I, I already have. have. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm, I'm brewing beer. And, and of course, at that time, a seven barrel system seemed like huge and, you know, learned my lesson there as well. But it, it was a wonderful learning experience. Wooden deck brewery, Grundy's converted cheese tank for a mash ton. They actually still have to this day the original copper kettle used by Hart Brewing before Hart turned into Pyramid. So one of wow. the, uh, you know, that thing yeah, yeah, that kettle belongs in a historical society one of these days, but it's it's still making beer. You know, that really taught me how to make clean beer in an unclean environment and kind of set the tone for who I would become as a brewer. Learned a lot there, brewed there for about two years, turned 21 at the brewery while washing kegs, and then eventually got poached by a very interesting character of a gentleman up in Carlton and helped start Fire Mountain Brewery up there. And that was the second brewery that I worked at prior to starting Flat Tip in 2010. So what kinds of beers were you making back then? Because obviously we think about 
oh, guy grew up in Oregon brewing beer, just to put shitload of IPAs, right? Like, what was the style? Yeah, I hate IPA. <laughs> you know, at Oregon Trail, our flagship was like an American style wit. Uh, and then we had, of course, an IPA, a ginseng porter, uh, brown ale. Really from the get-go, I dove into kind of weird ingredients on one hand, but then also some classic styles on the other. Uh, they had this, it was really a pale ale, but it was, it was called a Kolsch. And I remember seeing the label and seeing Kolsch and not knowing what that was. So I did all this research on it and I came to the owner of the brewery and I said, Hey man, this, this has like American two row and Willamette hops and we're fermenting it at 68. Like this isn't a Kolsch. Let me make this into a Kolsch. So I switched over to Pilsner malt, used a Kolsch, started cold fermentation. And that was on one hand where I fell in love with classic German styles. But on the flip side, you know, my, my first ever NHC medal was a seaweed wheat stout. <laughs> so I, I had this kind of training from Joel where he taught me to approach everything from a really practical level and know your ingredients and, you know, one thing at a time. But what I really wanted to do was just ferment anything I could find. And that definitely came out a lot at Flat Tail with a lot of the funky one-offs and kind of crazy ingredients we used there. Yeah, what's a quote that's attributed to Picasso forever, too? It's like that, you know, learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. Like, he gave you a foundation to be able to understand the concept of creating recipes and creating beers so that you could fuck them up and do it your own way, right? So Yeah, absolutely. Well. You know, if you know what a stout tastes like and you know what seaweed tastes like, you can put those two together and have some clue, you know, what the uh, end product is going to be. Yeah, my friends and I bitch about a lot of things in the industry, and that I would say that's one of the biggest ones, is that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much brownies you put into your fucking stout. If it's not good to begin with, get out of the industry. You don't belong here. Well, I, I many so you did. Yes, I'll yeah. say it again. I don't care. So tell me, I think the road from, well, a lot of people who listen to the show obviously are either considering opening a brewery or very you know shortly after opening a brewery or considering closing a brewery. But for those that are considering, what was that road like? Like you've worked in a couple of breweries. You obviously kind of get the concept of brewing. It's been seven barrel system. In any other industry, eh, maybe I guess not so much even in fitness when I was in before, but the idea of just going like, hey, I've worked here a while. I should be the owner. I should go get a million bucks and I should be the owner. Like how, and you, for you personally, how did that transition come about where you started feeling confident about the idea of running the whole show? Yeah, there's a lot to that. I mean, one of the biggest pieces was when I started my career professionally, you know, I, I was just about to turn 20. There was a lot of youth involved in my decision making <laughs> process. You know, I, I was an arrogant young guy who was, who was passionate about beer. So that was really my only focus. It was, what do I have to do to become the best brewer that I can be? And I'll figure the rest out whenever the fuck I get to it. So I started by just diving in to a brewery. And that was that was something you could do in 2008, 2009, 2010, a hell of a lot more than you can do now. If you walk into Deschutes and say, I'm a home brewer, let me wash some kegs and I'd like to be your head brewer in a year. I, I don't know if they'll even bother to laugh. But yeah, the climate has changed a lot. But back then, the long, long ago, you know, before COVID, before pastry stouts before even hazy IPA, you really could just get by on showing up and uh, being interested enough. So that that's what I did. You know, I, I got down and I, I scrubbed floors and then eventually they taught me what a triclover was. And then I learned how to do a CIP and then I learned how to Sani. And while you can't really do it the same way that I and so many other people did it, I do think there is still room for a bit of that approach. You know, a formal education is 
all but absolutely necessary if you want to work at a large-scale brewery. But if your dream, for some reason, is to work at or own a small brewery, I, I think there might still be some room for that approach in certain places. Um, and the best thing you can do is don't stop asking questions and, and find someone who will answer them. That was what got me as, as far as I got with that method was just finding people that knew way, way more than I did and never stopping uh, asking questions until I felt like I had learned everything I could learn from that per person. And then once you get to that point, keep asking questions, uh, go back. And, you know, you, you can never know enough in this industry because it is such a mix of, of science and art and we're finding new things out all the time and, and there are still new new methods for fermentation and, and uh, hopping and mashing and, and every aspect of it that, that we're discovering constantly. So it, it was really just immersing myself and also being absolutely laser focused on the vision of someday having my own brewery which to me meant make the best name for my beer that I possibly can at every brewery I work at until I can take it to the next level. So, you know, I was doing not only the brewing at Oregon Trail when I started, but, you know, when the other brewer decided to leave, I said, hey, let me be the only brewer. I want to do everything. And then I got into sales. So, you know, I'd, I'd brew Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, go out and sell beer Thursday, Friday, because I wanted to learn how to do that part of the operation as well. Fire Mountain, it was, it was a similar thing. But that was where I, I got to get into the uh, mechanical side of the operations as well. Basically, my dad taught me how to change my oil and use a crescent wrench. And that was about all of the mechanical knowledge I had when I got my second brewing job. And this was with this completely eccentric guy who, you know, thought that his kettle wasn't boiling correctly. So he cut the damn thing open and then rerouted the steam channel. <laughs> it didn't work. But I got to watch him do that. I got to learn how to use a boiler. I, I got to, for the first time, like figure out what happens when a glycol pipe busts open. You know, we were kind of talking about this before the show, but that if you're going to work at a small brewery, even now, even if it's a 15 barrel brewery and you're doing 2000 barrels a year, you better know how that glycol system works in and out. You, you better know the details of every tank you're using. You need to know which tanks crash the best, why they do, what to do if something fails, what happens when something fails, how to fix it, can you fix it? All of those things are, are part of running a brewery. Been a little off topic, but yeah, that, that was sort of really my kind of uh, intro to the industry was just completely immersing myself in every part of it that I could. And uh, when I left Fire Mountain, I was kind of at an in-between place, and I uh, I went to Kalapuya Brewing in Albany, which actually now, under new owners, is my co-packing facility. I had asked Mark, the owner at the time, if he needed a bartending position filled. Well, I found my next brewing spot, and he said, no, but I need a, I need a brewmaster for this new brewery we're opening. Do you want the job? <laughs> that was how I got into Flattail, and it was just because I had, I had spent uh, about three years really convincing everyone I could that... I was young, I was inexperienced, but I was willing to learn, and my focus was on being the best I could, and I made it as far down that road as I could until an opportunity presented itself. Yeah, so a story we've heard before, that you, you had the experience, the, the gusto, and, and they decided they were going to, I guess, we'll give you some, some sweat equity, basically, to kind of partner up and do this new project that they were doing. Yeah, you know, it, it sounds so weird to say it now, because the beer climate is just, ah, uh, nothing like it was back in 2010 as you well know 
but the the idea was we're in this college town where people don't really care that much about craft beer so <laughs> let's do this beavers themed sports bar but then have really great high-end beer too so you know the goal was to bring in the people who are there to have the college bar experience but then have a lineup of classic german styles experimental beers wild ales all of these things you can't find at at most brew pubs at that time um, and, and the hope was to catch a kind of double audience with that. Was that idea kind of already in motion? And, and I don't know much about Cal or, or anything about Calpui. I guess was the idea to be a different model than that they had sort of taken that brand where it could go and they wanted to try some different things. And so they wanted to create an entirely new brand. It was a group of the owners of Calapuya and then a local couple that had several restaurants, which you will definitely hear much more about later on in the show. <laughs> Good. So the plan was yeah, to have uh, very little to no connection between the two brands to start a whole new brand with a completely different ethos, Calapuya being in Albany, which is just it's only 15 miles away, but it's a very different town at the time and even still much kind of further behind as far as craft beer trends go. And I think they saw Corvallis as the location that could be kind of like a mini Portland, you know, could be a place where people came for craft beer. So again, we we spend a lot of time looking back to define the future and, and kind of what we could have done differently. Obviously, you're a kid, right? And, and from what I understand, you were kind of an asshole kid. So you probably had some mistakes <laughs> you made. But I've heard a story of a few times of the brewer who comes in, he gets some sweat equity. He's told he's the owner. And then there's a million times down the road where he has a legitimately intelligent decision that needs to be made. And the douchebag owners don't know what he's talking about. And they, of course, outvote him because he's got 5% phantom shares or whatever. So going back, when he offers you that gig, he offers you what he offers you, what advice would you have to somebody? Would, do you wish you had gone to an attorney and negotiated better terms? Oh, yeah. I mean, just to start. <laughs> so my situation is a, is a little bit different in that my biggest mistake was was just not asking the questions. You know, when I first got ownership at Flat Tail, I was 22 and was gifted 10%. The the reason that Flattail was so appealing to me was the worst possible reason. It, it was that I had this couple that, you know, had multiple restaurants and they said, we know how to handle the business side. So that's what we're going to do. And then I had this other couple that was going to be relatively hands off, but also I knew had owned another brewery for many years. And so my entire outlook was as as this young kid obsessed with making beer, I get to just make beer. And they can fucking handle the rest. And at the time, that sounded like the best thing in the world. But when I when I was brought into ownership, it never crossed my mind what that really meant. You know, this means now I'm not just sharing the profit. This means I'm sharing in any losses as well. This means that I do have a voting share in the company, but I, I didn't take advantage of that. I, I had so much tunnel vision that to me it was I have to win my first GABF medal. I have to sell enough beer to be able to afford to enter the GABF. You know, I need to get beer in Portland. I, I was driving, you know, another thing that you definitely can't do anymore. I, I would fill up my 1987 F-250 full of kegs and I'd drive up to Portland and I would go from bar to bar until I had sold all of those kegs. You know, that's how we set up our footprint outside of our local market was literally showing up with a truck full of kegs and not stopping the route until I sold them all. I, I very much wish that, yes, I had talked to a lawyer or just at the time in my situation, an adult <laughs> who could look at it with an unbiased view, you know, 
<laughs> um, and I, I, I'm not trying to be too self-deprecating, but absolutely. I, I mean, I was completely blind. I, I mean, I, I can tell you, I probably called my dad a million times to tell him how amazing this opportunity was. And it never crossed my mind to say like, hey, dad, what do you think about this? Are, are there any red flags here to you? But I always assumed that because I was the youngest owner, the youngest part of this business by such a huge margin that, you know, there's no way everyone else is going to get duped by someone in this group. So, you know, the grownups will figure that out. I just need to put my head down and make beer. Yeah, well, in your defense, too, anyone in that situation is going to just be excited, too, that you've gotten equity in a thing. And so it's really hard to sort of look a gift horse in the mouth and, like, tell daddy thanks for the bicycle, but what year are those tires? It's just, you know what I mean? I I get that. But, yeah, going back. 22 years old, and you're told you can be a brewery owner. You know, at the time, I, I was the youngest owner brewer in the country. To me, that was fun, but it it wasn't what I wanted. What I wanted was to win the medals. What I wanted was to to brew beers that no one else had brewed before. And that that was really the the only thing in my world at that time. Let's cover that before the break. What were you making? And more specifically, with all these genius adults in the room, how did you get to sort of set your brew schedule and like what the packaging was going to look like? Did were, did you have any autonomy in that side of it or did was everything run through committee? Yeah, so I, I was the only person running the brewery effectively um, almost from day one. Originally, you know, I, I would run orders by Mark and Laura, who were the owners of Calipuya at the time. I'd say, hey, I need I need to place this grain order. Do we have the money? That kind of thing. But there there was little to no involvement by any of the other partners in the actual brewery operations. I was the only brewer. I was the only employee for all of 2010. And then about halfway through 2011, I sat the group down and said, I'm working 100 hours a week. I haven't taken a day off in a year. And like, I got to hire someone. This is insane. So I hired uh, my first brewer, Sean Martin, who's now the production manager over at Ninkasi, working with uh, Jamie and Nico. And that was really, for me, like kind of the uh, the golden age of the brewery, because I got to put on my manager pants and and start figuring out, hey, I'm not just brewing whatever I feel like every day. Like, I'm going to try to put some thought into this. What's what's selling? What's not? What do I see being a, you know, a flagship kind of for the first time? So on one hand, you know, we were, I believe, the first brewery in Oregon to package like a traditionally brewed German style Kolsch. Um, our tailgater Kolsch was our flagship from about probably six months into business through the end of business. Our other flagship was a 4.2% alcohol dry hopped petit saison. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. What I really recognized with Oregon was that there was a need for both beer, beer, and also just this, this insane appetite. So, you know, we, we started doing 100% Brett fermented barrel ferments by the end of 2010. Our first anniversary celebration beer was a project I called, uh, I think it ended up being called the Wild Five, and it was five different barrels. And, uh, it was, you know, Brett C in one, Brett B in another, three different strains of lacto, all on different oak varieties, and we blend those together for just this wonderful, like, sour, wild blonde ale. Uh, we also did, you know, a 2% alcohol, no-boil brown ale with cherries and African cola nut. We did a mash-fermented beer, uh, sour, uh, basically just inoculated the mash with lactobacillus, fermented it on the grain, kegged it straight out of the mash tun. We did a huge number of, of really wild wild beers. Prior to an incident where a contractor dropped a false roof 
on our barrel room. <laughs> we had I think the uh, the third largest barrel room of any brew pub in Oregon. You know, only Cascade and I think maybe Block 15 at the time were ahead of us. But at our peak, we had 163 barrels in like 2012. Damn. You know, so yeah, yeah. So it, it was very much you know make the Kolsch, make an IPA. Back then, I still refused to have more than one IPA on tap. You're talking about lessons learned. That's sure <laughs> shit. One of them. I think having five IPAs probably could have added a couple digits to our revenue, but. Yeah, we, we had a, a couple classic styles at all times, a Kolsch, an IPA, a Baltic Porter uh, that were standards, and then everything else was whatever we could dream up. Okay. Well, there's a lot that I want to unpack in that little statement, but let's take a quick break. When I get back, we definitely want to talk about, well, for one, this barrel house, because I was a mixed culture brewery, so I'm, of course, fascinated by, I think I had 30 or, no, I had 50 barrels on the whole Ram Brewery, but also really curious about how the interaction went with the, uh, let's call them the rich assholes, and you, when it came to some of those unique and interesting styles that didn't necessarily fit the the standard model of the sports bar brew pub. So let's take a quick break. We'll get back to that. Before the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standards you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, you'll get a notification immediately. Go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, welcome back. Again, I want to know about these barrels. So let's start there. How big of a facility did it take you to fit 160 barrels? And that could not have been in the original building that the brew pub was designed for. That, that, that takes a lot more square footage. Yeah, so we actually, we had a 10,000 square foot building and about 3,000 of that was restaurant. So we we had a huge space with this tiny little six barrel, seven barrel brewery. So we had an entire, the room the cooler was in had a 30 by 20 walk-in and that took us up about half of the room and the rest was barrel racks, you know, four high, which, you know, considering our forklift was from like World War II and you had to have three guys hanging off the back in order to get the barrels past the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, it was really, it, it was a nightmare to cycle barrels. But we did our best to, you know, when we started brewing these barrel fermented things, like when we started our Lambic program, it was like, all right, pull everything out. That shit goes in the back. And you had just enough room to kind of climb up between the barrel racks to sample barrels. And and that was it. But it was really just jamming them in, uh, you know, like Legos in that back warehouse. And at the at the time, I mean, the the brew house itself, we had two 10 barrels, two open 15s, a 30 bright and one 15 uni uh, by I think year two. And obviously that expanded a lot. But most of the warehouse space was was largely empty. We we actually had much too big of a building. Okay. Uh, you know, back in the early 2010s, I think we were paying 10 grand a month for rent. And really, we the goal was to start with the building we need 
five years from now that had ups and downs. You know, we paid a lot of money for empty space for several years. But the the positive side of that was that it made it very easy to have this huge barrel program, which also helped us increase our capacity uh, because that kettle was always turning and we'd be filling barrels. We had a great relationship with a number of wineries, uh, Left Coast and Domain Serene. You know, we were getting wine barrels for 25 bucks a pop. Hmm. Uh, so that that's cheap fermentation space. You know, I've been a big fan of both very low and very high ABV beers. So whenever we were doing something, you know, 10, 11, 12, 15% alcohol, that was something that we could tuck in the back next to the Lambic. And then we'd do a 2 or 3% beer that we could turn in three weeks. We took a different approach to barrel aged and fermented beers than I think a lot of people were in that we did age beers long term, but we also very much treated wood as just another fermenter. So we would be doing, you know, English stouts, barley wines, pale ales, grisettes, all sorts of fairly quick turn beers just fermented in oak. You know, we were out of stainless. <laughs> barrels were cheap. So why not do a batch of beer in, you know, four oak barrels instead of a seven barrel fermenter? Okay. And so since the brew pub accounted for basically 30% of the space, I don't imagine it was 30% of the revenue of the business, but clearly the idea was that you would have a large percentage of your business outside of the physical plant. Was there a model of, you know, we need X amount of barrels outside, X amount of barrels inside? Um, or was it just kind of whatever you made, you sold and however you sold? Yeah, you, sold. you act like we had a plan. You know, when you were talking talking about the kind of idea of like a round table bouncing the uh, ideas off of the, the adults, um, that <laughs> didn't really exist. I, I figured out how to run a brewery by by running a brewery. Uh, when something worked, we did it again. When it didn't, we didn't. But I I, I never really had a, in the early days, you know, a, a mentor that had done things on that level or a group of people to, to talk to about how to do things. And also back then there, there wasn't as much of a model for how to run the kind of operation that we were running. We signed up for a distributor, for example, because our idea was get a distributor, sell more beer. We had no clue that franchise laws existed. Mm. We signed up with our first distro company. Um, and that was one of our first big wake up calls was like, we were under the impression talking to these people, talking to, you know, some other breweries that had signed that like, this is, this is this great thing because there are only a couple breweries doing what you do. So you kind of have the market to yourself. And we quickly found out that sales and marketing plays just as big. And now I, I think honestly, even bigger a role in a successful brewery than the actual beer itself does. And uh, getting into the distro game was kind of when we were forced to really grow up fast. It's not just new item forms. It's it's meeting with managers at Safeway. It's meeting with Chevron. It's meeting with the distributor once a week. It's making sure every single distribution employee is keeping your brand at the top of their mind when they're going into an account. How do you how do you convince a distributor to talk about your beer first? You know, th th these were all parts of the business that none of us had experience in. So again, it was it was really a trial by fire. Yeah. So what did you do with the distro first? Did you pick like one market with the intention of going further? Or did you do statewide right out of the gates? Well, regretfully, uh, that was one of the decisions that was sort of made as a group was to just hand the majority of our distribution over to a distributor. So that was Portland, Eugene, Salem. We kept our local rights in Corvallis, but we did uh, sign off a, a large chunk of our territories. And it, it was 
It was positive at first, again, because we were kind of the only fish in the pond as far as the types of beers that we were brewing. And then little by little over the next couple of years, it wasn't just one other brewery doing funky wild ales and, and sours and beers with strange ingredients and cucumbers and shit. It was every other brewery doing that kind of thing. So we sort of fell out of favor in the house we were in. And that's when we switched over to a larger distributor, GDI General Distributors, which, you know, had been a family owned independent distribution company for almost a hundred years at the time. <laughs> but they were, you know, they were a Miller house and they had not really dove into craft beer like most of the other distributors. So for us, this was like, this is our chance to both kind of increase our uh, distribution volume in that, you know, much more staff larger warehouse, more trucks, but also to go back to being kind of the cool kid in their book. Yeah, the one and it product. Worked, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and it worked fantastically. And uh, at that same time, we opened up distribution in California, Idaho. I started self-distributing in Washington because there's nothing a brewer wants to do more than wake up at two o'clock in the morning, load a truck full of beer, drive to Seattle, spend all day selling the beer, and then drive back the same day. Real glutton for punishment. Did you choose to do that because you wanted to build kind of a base previous to... So I did this same thing where I would self-distribute certain markets. I'd have distributors in certain markets. And one of the reasons I would self-distribute is I could get paid cash for those sales. And so it allowed me to kind of monitor cash flow if shit was tight. Like, well, I'm going to fucking Dallas because I need to go get some kegs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you know, and still to this day, you know, that's what like Bend and Southern Oregon trips are for New Springs. Like I've got, you know, a, a pretty small but tight knit group of accounts that support me. And it's a great place where when the market up here slows down a little bit, say, hey, I'm going to head down to Medford. I know I can sell 10 half barrels and, and uh, you know, visit my folks, do that kind of thing. And um, yeah, it was the same with Washington. It was like a place where we could go up once a month, do some events, drop off kegs, and definitely, you know, a nice quick infusion of cash. But also the idea was the wider the net we can cast as far as not necessarily overall sales, but as far as getting our name out there was something very important to us. You know, uh, 2013, we got our first GABF medals and it was, it was great. And, you know, we had a two or three month period where everyone was kind of talking about us. But, you know, buzz is hard to keep going. Mm -hmm. So doing kind of keep the beer nerds talking about Flattail. And uh, back to the distributor piece, you mentioned the Miller distributor. And I, I don't know if this is still happening, but it happened to me as well. So I'm curious to kind of dig that into that. We had the same thing. We went with a Miller distributor in our local market. And then they had a you know partnership with the Miller distributor in Austin. And the whole concept was that they were bringing on a craft beer guy because they were going to get into craft beer and so it's a whole new dude that was going to cover it and guess what we're the only brewery and it was an absolute shit show and it did not work at all how did that work for you from a cautionary perspective was were you the cool kid in the portfolio and they just sold it all day long exclusively to everyone they possibly could i mean it it actually was fantastic at the beginning uh the first two and a half three years we were with gdi we were able to significantly grow our brand we were no longer the only craft breweries in the book by far, but we had cemented ourselves in their book and with a lot of local customers to a degree that uh, we were very happy with how things were going. We were, you know, everywhere from bars like Bailey's and Belmont Station every week to, like I mentioned, you know, in Chevron gas stations with six packs of dry hop saison, you know, in 20. 14, 2015, number of chain stores, Freddy's, Safeways, all of those. And, you know, we were getting up to the point where we were doing a couple thousand cases a month between Oregon and California. Uh, it was a very good spot where we really failed to look forward adequately was, you know, nothing gold can stay. <laughs> and 
despite the fact that this company had been family owned for so long and we were so confident that that's how things were going to stay, they saw the writing on the wall that beer was big now, particularly craft beer. And so the uh, the Fick family decided they wanted to cash out on that. So our last year, but in particular, our last six months with GDI was the most catastrophic downturn uh, in volume we ever experienced. And at first it was, you know, it was kind of okay. You know, it's 2016. We've kind of hit a little bit of a peak. It's not a bubble yet, but clearly we're not seeing the growth we used to see. And then our volume started slowing down and we noticed far less engagement from the distributor. But at the same time, they were asking for us to run more routes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't getting ride-alongs as often. Uh, we were finding our, our billing in their promotional material was suddenly dropping off the front page and heading to the back and they were bringing on bigger brands you know hopworks at the time was a real big brand they brought on and then you know brands like boneyard obviously exploded they were suddenly you know competing with us and you know ultimately we found out after a number of goals were missed uh we would have big meetings about chain placements c-store placements and then we would ramp up production for those placements and all of a sudden they disappeared and that's when we really started questioning things and shortly after that we figured out that they were in the process of selling to columbia was the rumor and i actually ended up <laughs> i got a text from a buddy of mine owner of a local cider house and he said holy shit looks like we're we're finally in the same book <laughs> and that's how I found out that GDI had been sold to Columbia. <laughs> that yeah. sucks. Yeah, it, it was a real mind fuck. You know, even though things had obviously taken a downturn and, and weren't going as well as they had been in the past, I never in a million years imagined that they would they would sell their book and, and not even mention it to us. And, you know, obviously anyone who's ever Googled me knows that I'm, I'm very outspoken about independent beer and I'm very much not the kind of guy to be in, in Columbia's book. So we... We tried a hard pivot, sent a letter of separation out to Columbia, citing several things in our contract, uh, and immediately started self-distributing again. Mm. That did not go over well. So we, we got a C&D, and Columbia basically said, fuck no, you sell one more keg, and we'll see you in court. So it took about three months to negotiate with them, and eventually we did get our own rights back. But in that time, we didn't sell any beer. Yeah. I mean, any. Because they weren't going to we sell it, from... you couldn't. So Right. Yeah, exactly. But you know, anyone who's ever tried to break a distribution contract knows how impossible it is in a franchise franchise state. So you, you know, it, they have to basically burn your pallets in order for you to actually get out of that contract. You know, we would come at them saying our, our beer isn't being cold stored. And here are the photos. We're not meeting our order quantities. And all they have to do is essentially put in writing that they are making a concerted effort to fix the things that are in violation of your contract. They don't actually have to fix them. They just have to say, we're working on it. That was a huge hit for us. You know, we we went from being a very package-heavy brewery, very C-store and grocery-heavy, and then, you know, our funky one-off kegs at kind of tier one bars, and that had been our game for quite a while. And all of a sudden... You know, we were draft only mm. because you you just you can't go from packaging thousands of cases a month on on pre-printed cans to uh, running that by hand for, you know, just mom and pop shops. So our, our business model had to change overnight. And, and that was really a massive hit for us. How did that affect the relationship with the partners? Because those kinds of stresses are never good for friendships, uh, much less business negotiations. Yeah. Um, I mean, on a personal level, I don't know that there ever was really that great of a relationship between partners. You know, it, it was this, the relationship between myself and the Duncans was always this kind of 
forced trauma bond. You know, we were always broke. And of course, it was always the brewery's fault, not the restaurant's fault. And in retrospect, I realized that that was really, I, I don't think it's out of line to use the word grooming when I refer to this, this constant cycle of really putting the the success of the business on my shoulders. You know, it would always be compliments. Oh, the beer is great. We want a medal. Also, we're not making any money. It's the brewery's fault. You know, back and forth, positive, negative, positive, negative. So when the uh, distributor debacle went down, it was, of course, again, all on my shoulders. And I had to figure out a way to pivot and make the business work. And at that time, unbeknownst to us, for other reasons, the pub revenue was also going down significantly. So it was extremely stressful. That was, I think, 2016 or 2017 was the first year that I I got to know what anxiety was. And, uh, you know, particularly in fall and winter when sales volumes are going down anyway, now we're we're out of our our primary volume accounts. I'm back on the road selling. I'm back to doing all of the brewing myself. And you know that if there's one takeaway here, it doesn't matter if you can do it all. Don't. It is not a good option. Not just because burnout is real. And even if you don't realize you're burnt out, if you're working more than 60, 70 hours a week every work week, you are burnt out. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because it really robs you of your ability to understand what's going on in the, the bigger picture of the brewery. When you're hyper focused on getting your hours in and doing everything, uh, you know, for one aspect of the business, you miss a lot of what's going on uh, in the rest of the business. I always just had a, a hard time too when things were really bad and when the stress was big on your distributor late paying and, and trying to oh. balance shit in between and then to run out on the brew floor and just lead with passion and create creativity and just excitement for the product. It was, it was hard for me. And, and that was why I was there. And so it really, then it made me angry that I was doing a shitty job on the beer side and what shitty it just wasn't as good as it could be, but yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know, you, you find yourself like, Oh, I can clean that up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, we can cut 15 minutes off of this or that. And yeah, it's not a good feeling because when you come to grips with the fact that the thing that got you into the business can't even keep your spirits up. Yeah. It's rough. It's, it, that's a hard one. So let's let's end this uh, segment on a high note. Talk to me about some of the GABF medals and some of the big wins that you had throughout the the time that things were good, I guess. Let's back up a little bit yeah. and go to that. Yeah, so uh, 2013, I think it was 23, 24 or something like that. We, uh, we entered, I think, three beers in the GABF, and uh, we walked away with a bronze for Belgo-American. And, you know, that was huge for me because... Back then, you know, Stone was like one of my icons and brewing. They were so cool. <laughs> and, you know, knowing that we were beating beers like uh, Cali Belgique and, you know, Green Flash, Lafrique out of this shitty little tiny brew house. And, you know, in that case, uh, that was a beer that was fermented in a converted cheese tank. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we got a bronze medal. And then uh, we also the same year got a silver and German style Kolsch, which obviously very different style, very different brewing techniques. And that was that was huge. And obviously, we were stoked about the business implications, or at least what we perceived as the business implications. But for me, it was it was kind of that like we did it mm-hmm. moment, you know. And I had just hired Sean, so getting to share that with a brewing team and getting to hear your name called and go up and you know shake Charlie's hand. There were no fist bumps at that time. It was a magical thing. <laughs> um, and so we took two in 2013. Uh, we did not medal in 2014, but then in 2015, 
I had kind of alluded to us losing our barrel room. Basically, we had a contractor come in to fix a leaky roof and they showed up a day early and showed themselves in and did all of this work ripping down this wet, moldy insulation from the roof leak. Didn't tarp a single barrel, didn't cover anything. They had ladders leaning up against barrels. They're walking on top, bungs popped out everywhere. And by the time I got in, there was just wet insulation and, you know, green fuzzy mold coating the entire room. Wow. And it, it was so bad that within 48 hours, every single barrel was just covered in a, a green haze of mold. And I, I just that can, and also the the obvious amount of insulation dust, which is not something I plan on putting in a consumer's glass. Uh, we had to dump 90, 95 percent of our barrel room. Wow. So I, I was you know, having this crisis, like, you know, we have all of these lambics and we have fruited wild ales. We, we have imperial stouts. We, we have this huge program, but in particular, this wild ale program that we had really just started to get noticed for. How do we, how do we replace this volume? How, how do we keep building this name, but do it like right now? <laughs> no time for oak. So that's where the, uh, the damn wild series came up. And, you know, I honestly can't remember exactly how I got this into my head, but one of our, our previous partners had come in with a uh, box of plums from his backyard and they just had this insane perfumey aroma to them. So I isolated the yeast off of the uh, plum skin and found out after we sent it to a lab that we had not only this this great just brewable menagerie of lacto and brett, but we also had a unique heterofermentative brett strain. So they isolated that. And what I would do is take two open tanks. One got brett and hops, and one was exclusively lacto buckneri. Uh, buckneri, we ended up choosing because it produces a really, really complex acid profile in a short amount of time. And what we found was that by setting up the lacto tank exactly for lacto, you know, bubbling CO2 for the whole transfer, everything purged as well as we could for an open tank, you know, <laughs> literally saran wrap on the top of these tanks. And you would let the tank ride until the blimp of saran wrap started slowly dropping. And that's when we knew we had to transfer. And then the other tank, you know, was hopped and aerated and fermented with Brett. So we do those two fermentations on their own and, you know, very different temperatures, et cetera. And then we'd uh, we'd transfer into a blending tank with fruit and co-ferment. So we were able to get, you know, a beer with a finishing pH between 3.1 and 3.3, really complex acid profile and just a gorgeous beer in, in like four to six weeks <laughs> very quickly. So we, we started that program. Uh, I think 2014, 2015, somewhere around there. And that was really, that took off in a big way for us. And because we could make it so quickly, my stupid dream was put this in a bottle as cheaply as we can, because I want people to learn about sour beer and enjoy sour beer and be able to get a world-class sour beer without having to spend 50 bucks for a bottle of Cantillon. Not that my beer is Cantillon, but you get the idea. Yeah. And it, it worked in that, you know, we, we ended up getting World Beer Cup bronze and mixed culture Brett beer. We got a bronze at GABF and mixed culture Brett beer. We actually got gold with the same series and American Sour at GABF. I think we, we got four medals for that series, all the same base beer, just different ingredients to finish out. But where it really backfired was it didn't matter how many medals we got. It didn't matter how many accolades this series got. It was still a $6.22 of beer and a $6.22 just couldn't possibly be that good. So we had a terrible time uh, selling it. It was just 
shocking to us. You know, I, I couldn't believe that the price being low would be what turned people off. We ended up literally putting not a fucking kettle sour on the labels. Yeah. Because the, the number one review we got is like, oh, it's okay for a cheap sour, but I hate kettle sours. It's like this fucking lactobacteria and a Brett that I isolated off of goddamn plums. Like it, this, this strain is named after us, you know? Yeah, if you had just but, charged 35 bucks, they would have thought it was uh, three years old and then went around with it. Yeah, and, and that's what we ended up doing and what I ended up doing with New Spring. And it, it was, you know, it was too little too late, but uh, much more successful selling the sours at a higher price point than at a lower one. So how many medals did you ultimately win? I, I think we've got four for the Wild and Sours and the Kolsch and the uh, Belgo American. So six total, I believe. Not and bad. we've only ever entered GABF and World Beer Cup, which I know sounds like a dick thing to say, but th- those are the competitions I care about. We do, I have judged and entered the OBA a few times, uh, the Oregon Brewers Awards. I've not meddled there yet, <laughs> though uh, Ezra at New School has convinced me to, to start entering again, so who knows what'll happen this year. Well, cool. Let's take a quick break, and uh, when we get back, let's talk about some of the bullshit. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> we'll be right back. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine, keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts, but it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business, and her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right, so thanks for sticking in with me. I appreciate you going through some of those good times. I feel like there's gotta be one more. Like, tell tell me like your, one of your proudest stories from yeah, like the years between opening and like 16, 17, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think the two things that that make me smile the most when looking back at the flat tail times are, ah, this is going to sound stereotypical, but like the, the crew we had was just, I know you're laughing already. I'm not, it, it was I'm not so laughing great. at I mean, you. I'm, I'm laughing <laughs> in the sense that it's not stereotypical only because it's I think that's why a lot of us got into it is that creating the art having a community and so it's it's not like cheesy in the way that you're a douchebag for saying it I'm laughing because it's like yeah of course that's what we're all doing that's why we love GABF yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely you know I I mean I I'm still some of my best friends most of my best friends either are old employees of mine or people I met in the industry and it's just awesome to see all of us regardless of the trauma and what it took to get where we are, you know, kind of myself excluded (laughs) what we've done, you know, like having Sean, my first real brewer, you know, running the production in Nkasi, you know, I've got interns running wineries in New Zealand, uh, interns in management positions at, at, uh, you know, Kona brewing, um, you know, big and small, just seeing that we all, we all stuck with it for the most part. And uh, getting to kind of see our little work family grow up has been huge. And also, in retrospect, after discovering a lot of what we'll talk about next, it, it's difficult to know that we did things so much better than we thought we did. But being able to look back at the real numbers, not the numbers that were handed to us, and, and see the, the profit we made in the early years, fuck, 
<laughs> I mean, we were, we had these, you know, two couples, but really just one older couple running the business side of things. And everyone else was in their early 20s. I mean, this this was like from front of house to kitchen to brewery, like 35 kids hmm. doing this thing. That's cool. And Yeah. And we weren't just winning medals for cool beer. We were actually making a shit ton of money, too. None of us saw any of it, but it was made. And I don't know if pride is the right word, but just there's some satisfaction, you know, looking back and being able to see that. Yeah. Well, especially if you were told that. It wasn't, and you were struggling. Like it's a kind of validation sure. that you know we were we were doing something yeah. right. Fuck off, old people with the money. Like yeah, yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's about all the positivity I can handle. So it's time to pivot to some of the bullshit. Okay. So no, I'm just kidding, but tell me a little bit about I guess kind of what happened. And you know, I I make it a point not to over research you so that you can surprise me. And sure. I have a feeling that I'm going to be a little taken aback by some of the bullshit when when that went down. So when did the you're doing well. You're winning awards. Things are great. You've got a team that's kicking ass. You still love them to this day. When did the cracks start to happen? What What was the first signs? Well, I mean, the first signs happened in fucking 2010. I was just too focused and too uh, too arrogant at the time to, to notice it. But w- when things really got bad was, you know, really late 2017 and 2018. It, it went from kind of always being broke, but also always having money. Y- you know, we were never too broke to do business. But there was never enough left over for, you know, me to take a paycheck, despite the fact that the Duncans were always taking a paycheck. You know, they had kids, so it made sense. They got to take a paycheck home because they have mouths to feed. And I'm just a, you know, young college dropout who can live off of ramen and hope. So that always existed. But when 2018 rolled around, it, it really, for the first time, was like, no, don't. Like, Dave, don't order great. Like, we got nothing left. Restaurant numbers are down. And coupled with just the the apparent lack of ability to really functionally do business, I noticed my partners just not showing up anymore. Hmm. You know, we went from having, like, the best pub food around. I mean, our specials were killer. We had, uh, you know, this fantastic Cuban sandwich. We had this great barbecue menu. Uh, we would do, you know, elaborate meat and veggie specials that, that were just some of the best food you could get in town, but at this brew pub. And, and suddenly we weren't doing specials. And instead of changing the menu every two months, we were never changing the menu. Or when we did suddenly, you know, we're, we're being told in meetings, like we're going to, we're going to kind of go back to our roots and get back to that Southern cooking and get some fried chicken back on the menu and these fun meat dishes. And then it was like, we have patty melts and rice bowls now. And, you know, I, I was never really involved on the restaurant side up until 2018. So it was even for me, even as brainwashed into this thing as I was. It was definitely starting to uh, to really raise serious alarm bells. Like, why why didn't we put money back into the pub when we had the money? Why why is our paint chipping? Why have we not replaced the carpet? And, and you know, it, it the answer was always, well, the brewery isn't making enough money. And you know, those those were the accounts that I had access to. That was the business that I ran. And I, I kept thinking, like, well, we're not losing money. And the restaurant was grossing, you know, over one and a quarter million for years. What what happened with the restaurant? So I started getting more involved in, like, we, we need to change the fucking menu. We need to paint. We need to do these things. And, you know, it was always just kicking the can down the road, kicking down the can down the road. And then my, my partner, Ian, had a major hip injury, old hip, whatever you want to call it. And he, uh, you know, suddenly was having trouble walking around. 
so it went from he'd kind of be up in the office all day to he couldn't walk up to the office, so he'd show up, he'd grab the cash, he'd <laughs> go to the bank, and we wouldn't really see him much anymore. So I, I found myself being forced into having to uh, really deal with front of house and back of house restaurant staff. Uh, on top of, at that point, I was back to being the only brewer because, of course, if we're going to cut costs, it's got to be on my side of the business. <laughs> and I was just running myself completely ragged, not taking a paycheck anymore, back to never taking time off. And it it was reaching ahead before the kind of now infamous moment where, where the glass really shattered, which was in um, March of 2019. Okay. So I'm sure you're going to get to this, but even though you're a little bit focused on you know, your side of the business and you, well, you saw the books, but so you, you saw like kind of the growth coming up as far as the output, the distribution, um, you obviously the issue with Columbia, but when they were saying that things were bad, did you already kind of see that on your side or was the brewery sort of yeah. holding and keeping its own? I mean, we, we, we saw obviously that huge drop in volume on the brewery side, which never really came back. Their distributor in California as well, you know, we're buying tons of kegs back and we can't figure out why. And then all of a sudden I put a temperature monitor on a pallet and I realize our beer is being stored in a rental garage in LA with no temperature control. And, uh, That's a good one. that. Yeah, it's not. Let me tell you. (laughs) So our reputation got just crushed in California right around the same time that the uh, GDI Columbia issue went down. So we just we were losing market share left and right. And, you know, that was obviously a major issue, but also because of the nature of the business and because of what I was used to doing, it, it wasn't impossible to pivot back and, you know, cut costs massively and go back to me sort of running a brew pub style lone brewer kind of operation. So while it made sense in in one aspect where clearly we have this huge decrease in volume, what didn't make sense was we're still not losing money. So so how is the business overall losing so much money? And, you know, I'm looking at P&Ls and balance sheets from the restaurant and nothing's adding up. You know, it's like I, I see these and these numbers don't match the situation that's in front of me. And and that was when I, I really had a kind of personal come to Jesus moment where I was like, I, I need to I need to figure out how to understand this, how to understand these things that I'm looking at. Well, so as a brewer looking at the P&L of a restaurant, because again, if if we have another person listening to the show, it's about to be offered a situation similar to yours. I don't know that if I just dug into a restaurant P&L that I would immediately be able to tell that there was some bullshit going on. What were you seeing? Like the, the, the sales numbers on the books were just dramatically less than what they typically were or... I don't know. Was it, how, how did what did you see? Yeah, that that was part of it. And then also, what really should have tipped me the fuck off was repeatedly getting financials that didn't match the last set. Really, you like know, you get an updated one, and like quarter three was yeah. just different. <laughs> right. And then I, I'd like look in my email versus the thing that was printed out, and I'd be like, "This is the same quarter." but two different copies and they have different numbers. And it was always explained to me as like, oh, well, you know, the accountant looked it over, so they made some adjustments and that sort of thing. And this is a shitty piece of advice, but I also think it's it's incredibly important, which is d- just don't trust people uh, and not like don't ever trust people, but, you know, trust, but confirm that information. And if it's OK if you're not an accountant, I'm not saying that everyone who opens a brewery needs to have a business degree or an accounting degree, but do have an accountant. You know, hopefully you trust your business accountant. 
Don't let your partners do all of the accounting. Have a third party take care of that. It is not a big enough chunk of your revenue for that to not be worth it. And that's a safety blanket for everyone. Whether you have a dishonest partner like I did, or whether you just have a partner who thinks they can do the books and doesn't actually really have that good of a grasp on it, you can save yourselves thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars by having a competent bookkeeper who is not intimately involved in your business. That's huge. And if you, like I didn't, don't understand how to read and fully comprehend, not just to read these sheets, but fully comprehend the the implications of what you see on a profit and loss and a balance sheet when compared to the bank statements that you're looking at, hire someone, do it on your own. Just you have to make sure that you have at least a basic level of understanding, but that also you have someone who is not connected financially to your business looking at these numbers. I, I cannot overestimate how important that is. All right, Dave, quit teasing me. What the fuck happened in 2019? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I've told this story way too many times now, but it, it's it, it really all came down to one day. You know, I, I was in the back of the brewery standing next to one of these open tanks, peeling off saran wrap, getting ready to jump inside and, and get to scrubbing. And my partner comes up to me and he's got this look on his face, just like not a good look. And, you know, you, you work with someone for a decade, doesn't matter if you like them or not. You, you get to know their their tells and their expressions. And so I'm, I'm like, what what the fuck is up, man? What happened? What broke? That was my first thought was, you know, like, okay, the water heater exploded again and we've got to replace the ceiling in the kitchen, you know, something like that. Or like some guy in the kitchen forgot the baking soda and caught something on fire. Like, what is it? And he he says to me, you know, we've got to talk. I think we have some tax debt. I think we have some tax debt. We may or may not. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh huh. And so, you know, because these guys were were handling the the entire financial side of the business, I, I assumed that they would have a grasp on the financial side of the business. So, of course, I'm like, well, what the fuck does that mean? Is it like five grand? Ten grand? Holy shit, twenty grand? Like, what do we owe? And he tells me, well, you know, my wife has the details, but I I think it's about $100,000. And I don't know how to describe my emotions in that moment other than when when people say gut punch. Like, it is a physical, real reaction when you hear something like that, particularly when, you know, this is March. This is the time of year where we can start smiling again. (laughs) College kids are going to be back in the pub. People are drinking beer. We've got our sour releases about to launch. I'm actually starting to feel positive again. And I'm thinking, yeah, things are going great, but they're certainly not going terribly. And all of a sudden, he's telling me we've got six figures and not just debt, but six figures and fucking tax debt. Yeah, those Uh, are the kind of numbers that uh, tank businesses. So Yeah, yeah. And, And that's, you know, tax debt doesn't go away. (laughs) <laughs> no matter what you do, Uncle Sam gets his money. So, you, you know, I, I of course, am, am just flabbergasted. And I'm I'm asking him, like, well, what the fuck do you mean? Like, maybe it's $100,000. Like, how much money do we owe, man? Like, th- this is, I don't even know what to say. And he's kind of like, yeah, you know, I, I was surprised, too. And he's playing it off like he didn't know. Mm. And obviously, you know, I, I had already kind of had my hairs up a little bit. And, and this was just like, oh, fuck something is not just wrong but i clearly have not been kept abreast and and i i gotta figure out what's going on so it was actually a relatively short conversation and i i just told him like i i need updated financials tomorrow morning like at the latest and you gotta you gotta email me this shit right away i i need an exact number i need to know how we we got to this point because you know at the time i i didn't even 
realize what we were paying quarterly in payroll taxes. You know, I didn't know that uh, in our peak season, we we were paying forty to fifty thousand dollars a quarter in payroll taxes just for the pub side of the business. So, you know, to me, when I hear a hundred thousand dollars, I'm thinking like, did, did we not pay taxes for like years? <laughs> you know, what what are the what are the periods? What I need some info. So next morning rolls around. And I'm still kind of in a haze, just trying to hope beyond hope that this is like some bad dream that, you know, something isn't as it seems now. I I was picking up groceries and I get a call and it's my partner. And, and, you know, he's saying, okay, you know, we really got to get you over here to talk about this. I was like, yeah, we do. But first I need everything I asked for and I need to look at it. He says, well, no, we want to, we want to talk it over in person. And I said again, no, you need to send this to me right now. I know you have all of these documents ready to go. I know you have all the info. You need to send it to me. Like I, I am your partner in this business. At that time, I owned 42 and a half percent of the company and so did they. So we were equal, you know, co-majority partners. I said, I, you know, I'm the fucking managing member on paper for this business. I, I need this right now. I don't want your interpretation. I just want to see it. And that's when he just lost it. You know, you fucking piece of shit. You're going to misunderstand it. Like you're too dumb to look at this stuff. You need us to show you what it means. Otherwise, you're going to misunderstand it. And obviously the veil had been lifting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the previous day really cemented that. But if there were a, a true glass shattering moment, that was it. It, it was just immediately like this is not how how people acting in good faith respond to and, these basic questions. Well, it's it's numbers. Uh, That's supposed to be the whole point. So you can you can misunderstand right. it, but you'll be told what it is for real because it's numbers. It's, yeah. it's, it's facts right. and figures. Numbers <laughs> are numbers. You know, exactly. It's, it's a fixed point. Yeah. So, you know, ended up hanging up on me. That's when I went home and, uh, you know, my wife was out in our, our front yard. Uh, just finished this lovely little stonescape that she was enjoying on a nice spring day and i said uh, boy do we have to talk <laughs> you know i i don't know how to tell you this because i i don't even really know what's going on but we've got a major fucking issue and and to me it seems like this is not just an accident or not just slow business that caused this I, i'm getting some some real bad vibes about how these conversations went down and I explained everything and it was you know that was one of the lowest moments in my entire life you know having to look at my wife who was a co-owner of the business but really had had virtually no involvement with it from day one I, I shared my ownership of the company with her because the idea was she had sacrificed so much you know working as a teacher working side jobs to support us for so long when this was my dream and not hers, that I wanted to give her ownership so she could share in what I thought was the inevitable profit that was always just a little bit further away. And having to tell her, you know, not only are are we like not doing hot, but uh, supposedly we have all this debt that none of us knew about. So that was that was just emotionally catastrophic. Yeah. How'd you handle it? (laughs) Let me just say that I am a fucking lucky motherfucker. My wife is an incredible human being and i would not be sitting here talking to you on this podcast if it weren't for her support and the relationship that we have obviously she was devastated but there was a never there was never a moment where she stopped trusting me and there was never a moment through this process where we weren't working together you know from from that moment on it was like okay you're right this is this is fucked (laughs) and uh yeah, it sounds like something is not right. So from now on, like I need to know everything, whether you think it's a small detail, big detail, 
I know I'm not involved in the business. I know I don't understand how this all works, but when you find something out, we find something out and we talk about it and we make these decisions together. And, uh, we did. And, you know, she, she had a better nose for this bullshit than I did very much, you know, because she was not obsessed with mm. being the best brewer or, or making beer or, you know, living this youthful fucking dream for over a decade. You know, she was a teacher. She had her thing. So she was able to look at it with a different set of eyes. And, um, yeah, you know, it, it certainly has not been easy. Far from it. But her support and us working together through this process is, like I said, the only thing that got us through and absolutely invaluable. So, you know, she's inside with the dog right now. Uh, she's still a full-time teacher. She runs uh, her own little handmade bead jewelry business on the side. She's as hard of a worker as I am, a little bit smarter, maybe a lot a bit smarter. And I'm incredibly grateful to have her as a partner still to this day somehow. Well, these things suck to go through, no doubt. But uh, at the end of the day, those kind of partnerships get tested during this. And that's when you find out who like yeah. who the real badasses are. My wife that's and I were cool. partners in both of our business. And I'm like, I wouldn't lie to you and tell you that the brewery didn't do its best to break us up. But uh, we managed to live through it. And we are definitely stronger now because of it. But there were some dark times, for sure. Don't believe it. So what ended up happening? I assume eventually you got the numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we ended up getting an email on Sunday, and it was like, oh, actually, it's like 140000 mm. And here's this other list of credit cards that we didn't know existed and the balances. And also we owe some state taxes, too, and uh, $60,000 to our food vendor. It, it was just, uh, it, it was a clusterfuck. There was so much debt that none of us were aware of outside of, you know, the Duncans that it was just hard to even look at it and, and and think these are apparently real numbers. Our business did not exist as I thought it did. So, you know, we had an, an all hands ownership meeting that Monday and, you know, they showed up and basically said, OK, so the brewery is fucked and uh, we're going to close everything down and uh, June will be our last month in business. And that was like how they opened the meeting. Wow. And, you know, Mike and I are sitting there with with our uh, silent partners, Chris and Monet, who were also, you know, part of the lawsuit and, and still partners in New Spring. Uh, actually, it's just my wife and I and Chris and Monet now in New Spring, finally. And, you know, we're like, whoa, take a step back. Like, we, we got to get some idea of how this happened, what happened before we make the decision to shut this restaurant and brewery down. I mean, it's been a decade like we are 10 years old this july and you're telling us that we have to close down a month before that anniversary but we still don't understand where you know why and there were just no complete answer there were no answers it was just well the business isn't making money so we have all this debt it's like well where was this debt in the last meeting and the meeting before that and the meeting before that why were we not planning for this a year ago why why didn't we shut down a year ago if this is really how bad things are before we amassed all this debt and you know this was 2019 and i, I still to this day can't believe they use this fucking phrase but he said you know this is a witch hunt oh slams his fist on the table. <laughs> You were kind of being a dick about it. You just be like, hey, man, I get it. I feel for you. What an asshole. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> You're right. Totally. To- totally a witch hunt. Yeah. So they were just irate and we never got any answers out. They eventually ended up storming out of the room. And, and so that's when we just we kind of looked at each other and like, OK, so what do we do next? And talk to some good friends. And, you know, the the first things we did were hire the uh, lawyer that shut us down from Columbia because we knew he was good. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I started basically showing up to work in the middle of the night and just combing through every hard copy of every file I could find on site. You know, I had a great staff that, 
you know, I had very trusting relationships with. So I was able to have my warehouse manager like, I need you to go through every file cabinet in the building. And when you say see anything that's a bill that doesn't say paid on it, I want it to go in this folder. And if it's state tax debt, I want it in this folder. If it's federal, put it in this folder. Just trying to, you know, okay, we're not getting the info from them. So let's see what info we can get from the building. And, you know, at this time, I had no access to the restaurant side bank accounts just the brewery side. Everything was always just printed out and handed. I I had no ability to really check the source myself. And so, you know, we got these hard copies of bank statements and uh, printed out a bunch of payroll journals. And that's when I started just doing the most basic, easiest thing I could, which was comparing costs on our financial reports to actual bank accounts. And it did not take long to realize like, you know, our our payroll journals say we have $200,000 in payroll for this period, but we transferred 300,000 to uh, Duncan Culinary Ventures, Ah, which was our partner payroll company. And it had been set up to our knowledge so that their employees from other restaurants and the employees from our restaurant could all be under the same payroll envelope. And therefore we could swap employees. We were supposed to save costs on processing, that kind of thing. But what we found out is it was really just an LLC meant to disguise it was being used for. So they would transfer money for payroll and taxes and oftentimes much more than what they needed for payroll and taxes. And then they stopped paying the taxes but kept transferring the money. So we had actually transferred every penny necessary to pay all of our tax obligations, but wasn't being used for that. Now, the the silver lining here is that because they used this LLC that only they owned, the tax debt actually didn't belong to us. Hmm. You know, they kept telling us that the brewery and restaurant have all this tax debt. Well, we actually didn't have any tax debt because we didn't have any payroll. All of the payroll for the brewery employees was handled on the brewery side. So that was always kosher because... I had my hands and eyes on that. The payroll for the pub side of the business, which was a separate LLC, was all ran through their payroll company, which really existed to just take money from all of these businesses and then obfuscate where that money went. So that was really the scheme. And then from there, uh, you know, looking further into the bank statements personally and then also hiring a forensic accountant was when we started realizing where a lot of the money was going. And, you know, we found emails talking about getting debt off the books for their other restaurants, but not Flattail. We found expenses for trips to Hawaii, Grateful Dead concerts. They used our money to buy donuts for their kids' fundraiser and then <laughs> sold the donuts back to us. Wow. Yeah. Like, you got to try to be that shitty. Yeah, like on purpose, because uh, even if you accidentally had a shred of a conscience, at some point it would talk to you. So you, you got to be a true sociopath for shit like that. Yeah, you're bringing the motherfucking Boy Scouts into your fraud. Like, that's, well, I guess the Boy Scouts aren't don't have the best track record. Well, so. and not for very much money. It's not like, it's not like a $20,000 Boy Scout scam. Like, it's just, at that point, why do it? It was a lot of fucking Krispy Kremes, I'll tell you that much. You know, one of my, like, favorite, least favorite moments after this all happened, we were talking to uh, a young bartender at one of my favorite accounts, Brass Monkey in Corvallis. Also, thank you, Morgan, for donating the uh, proceeds from that last keg to our GoFundMe. Way to go, She's Morgan. awesome. Yep. <laughs> you know, and this bartender's like, I just, it's so crazy to think about this because they were always such great people. And, you know, they were so nice to me. You know, they paid for my cheerleading camp when my parents couldn't afford to. And I'm just like laughing. She's like, what, what, I, why are you laughing? And I'm like, was that 2012 and 2013? She's like, yeah, how'd you know? Was it 800 bucks a year? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, we fucking paid for that. <laughs> like, we found it in the 
bank statements. So they were they were not only stealing money just to steal money, they were using it as this way to build up their image in the community as these wonderful people who help everyone else out and and they're so kind and charitable pillars of the community, but they were stealing money from their own business to do that. Hmm. Well, that is insane. So I am saving the fourth segment to talk mostly about New Spring, but unfortunately, like I said, there's no way I'm going to get it all in. So we're going to come back from this little break. We're going to say a couple of mean things about the two assholes that stole all the money, and then we're going to spend a bunch of time talking about the next new cool thing you're doing. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Okay. I know. I said I'd like to talk about all the negative stuff, but I'll be quite honest with you. This one actually is causing me some, like, actual physical um, reaction. I, these guys are fucking assholes. So tell me <laughs> tell me at least some little piece before we get into the New Spring story about, like, how are they going to get theirs? Like, I know you're suing them. you got a paper yeah. trail. What, do you, what are we going to do to them? So, I mean, the <laughs> – well, that's up to you. <laughs> the, the positive news is after four – Four, it's so hard to say that number out loud. Four fucking years in court. We did finally get our uh, trial in uh, June. It was actually our second trial. Our original trial was scheduled for January. And the morning of trial, all of these financial documents that didn't exist and had been lost magically showed up. Hmm. Like over 2,000 pages of financial documents. So we were actually forced to delay the trial. Oh, right. The first day of the trial after waiting four years to talk about low points. Like we think we're finally going to get to the end of this. And suddenly we realize we've got another six month delay and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in additional legal fees. Um, So that happened on a positive note. We I think we found an extra of 150 K in theft because of those documents that we got. Wow. We're able to win our second round of sanctions because of the uh, late production of all of those. So they had to, you know, in theory, have to pay us extra for that. And when we did finally make it to the actual trial in June, five days in court, eight to nine hours a day until Friday, which which was, I think, a 14 or 15 hour day, we left, you know, feeling incredibly confident because we were really the only side that had, like, information. (laughs) Their entire argument was really just, I mean, it was it was insane. Um, it's my opinion that they they were really banking on being able to cause a mistrial and just set the whole thing off by another whatever period of time. But they, they had no they had no documents. They had no uh, numbers to refute anything that we found. So it, it was really cut and dry. So the you know 12 person jury returned a unanimous decision on every count of every charge 
in our favor, including all of the counterclaims that they brought were unanimously dismissed. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that is what I had hoped would be the end of the story. And it sounds like this wonderful fairy tale ending. And, you know, we we celebrated we there was definitely a, a huge weight lifting, you know. I am not a big fan of of Western medicine, both because I'm allergic to fucking everything and because I'm a dirtbag hippie at heart. So I, I had been taking all these like herbal supplements to sleep at night for years and all of these, you know, theanine and holy basil and shit to manage constant panic attacks and anxiety. I, I quit every single one of those cold turkey that night really? and slept like a goddamn baby. And it was like two beautiful, glorious weeks of just celebrating this thing we had finally been able to do and, and then they filed bankruptcy just kind of saw that coming unfortunately yeah and it's not that we didn't think that was an option we just thought it would happen prior to the trial and part of the reason that it was at least somewhat surprising is that they also inherited over a million dollars through a trust fund for a property that their family owned in maui <laughs> they did this during the lawsuit they received this money and we also knew that they were they were making great money you know between the two of them mid six figures for uh you know working at the local country club so we're thinking they've got money uh we also knew that they had used in what is my opinion was our money to uh build a brand new house you know as soon as they got that hawaii cash suddenly they're paying 400 grand cash for a brand new home on their property so we're thinking, yeah, that sucks that they spent the money, but this is also a brand new home in a great area. And that's an asset that should be pretty easy to retrieve. Mm-hmm. So we still were hopeful. And then we really got to know how the American bankruptcy system works. Yeah, you don't actually have to be broke that? to file bankruptcy. <laughs> so. Well, you know, that's the fun part is you actually can't be broke and file bankruptcy. It's like six grand to to go through the process. So the people that actually need bankruptcy protection can't afford to file for it. it the whole system is is in in many ways set up to just keep wealthy individuals from having to pay out lawsuits or major business losses it, it's not you know i think when most people think about bankruptcy they think of you know average joe working seven to eight every day who just can't make ends meet and he's got to get rid of some credit card debt that doesn't often happen that that's really not how the system is generally used. So not only did the bankruptcy filing halt us from collecting any money, but it also paused our ability to evict them as owners of the company. Oh, really? So, uh, yeah, yeah. So up until two weeks ago, they still owned legally 42.5% of the fucking company. All right, so lesson, again, in the operating agreement, it should say, if I have to sue you for embezzlement, you piece of shit, you're immediately out. Yes, and actually, we do have that clause. Really? <laughs> Didn't matter. We had to basically ask the court for permission to enter, you know, the judgment again. And uh, we had to stipulate to certain parts of it, you know, being executed during the court and certain parts having to wait until the end of bankruptcy. So, you know, they're out of the company. We're able to retrieve a significant amount of our sanctions. But, you know, that that's about it. And now that we're in yet another ongoing chapter, I, I can't fully talk about everything going on in that bankruptcy hearing, but we we expect to still be in court from basically the timeline is like four to eight more months before uh, bankruptcy court is over. While they continue to move money around and hide it in any way they possibly can, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, that would be my guess. 
So let's talk about something. Let's let's move to something good. Like what what happened with the Fantastic. business? So in 2019, this shit happens. It's 2023 now when we're talking. Did you guys own the build the building? Did you get rid of it? Does the equipment go somewhere? We yeah, that's fun assets? too. So you know the little minor detail we skimped over in this is uh, fucking COVID. So, you know, we figure all this shit out and basically the four to five months after we're able to get the Duncans out of the active operation of the business, mm-hmm. they did all sorts of fun stuff like cancel our Cisco account, take 20 grand out of the checking account before we were able to get their names off of it, send our landlord a letter terminating the lease without telling anyone, uh, you know, actively sabotaging the business. Yeah. And despite that, we were we were feeling great because all of a sudden it's like, oh, shit, like we're we're making money. You know, I, I'm able to pay people fairly for the first time in ages. But once the summer hit, all of a sudden, we just started getting inundated with letters. <laughs> letters from a growler company that we hadn't purchased growlers from for over a year for six grand. You know, uh, letters for all sorts of brewery and restaurant debt on top of all the debt we had already found. So suddenly we were a little bit less optimistic, still making a go of it in the same spot. Then winter hit. And, you know, COVID was kind of getting talked about a little bit by November, but it wasn't really on everyone's radar fully. And we obviously had no idea what what this thing uh, was at that point. But what we did know is that living in, you know, a fairly educated liberal uh, college town, when people hear global viral pandemic, (laughs) whether or not it's actually going to, you know, kill half the population or tens of people or tens of millions of people, people freak out, obviously, as they should. And the business we were seeing coming through the door in the restaurant, which had always been fairly consistent, just tanked. And we were seeing it all over town. You know, we had a really tight knit community of restaurants, especially on the waterfront in Corvallis. We'd constantly be walking up and down, talking to each other, you know, what's been working for you lately? Like we would coordinate, you know, trivia nights. So we weren't stepping on each other's toes, things like that. And everyone was just head in hands this winter, wondering where the business had gone. And then January hits. And obviously now people are starting to realize like, this is, this is a real serious thing. Like people are getting sick all over. We have no idea if they're going to be long-term side effects. We we don't know if this is going to, uh, you know, cause a shutdown, something like that. February rolls around. And by February, all of us in our local community were essentially begging for a shutdown <laughs> because in, in our minds, like number one, this is fucking scary. Like people are getting sick all over the world and they're telling us to like put a homemade cloth mask on and like, you know, don't shake hands anymore. You know, just there, there was no adequate information available to the general populace to make an educated decision as, as to how serious this was, what to do, etc. So people just stopped going out in a huge way in Corvallis. And I don't know, probably less of that in, in Texas, but I imagine it was going on to some degree nationwide. So when we got shut down on March 16th, we were just barely scraping by at that point. And generally speaking, the second half of February was where things started to tick up. And then March was just like a rocket ship every year. And we would just pay off everything that was left over from the winter by the end of March or April. And then, you know, May, June, July were just money months. And the first two weeks of March were like the first two weeks of January. There was no one coming. Yeah. So, you know, we, we get the shutdown order. And of course, in retrospect, 
not the best idea, but we, you know, we had the place packed the night before the shutdown and everyone's crying and drinking beers and talking about the the good old days and, you know, what's going to happen next. And I think at that point, I was kind of the only one that really realized, like, I think a lot of us are not going to open back up. Yeah. And so, you know, we we couldn't make the to go model work. You know, we had 140 seats, a lot of which was outdoor, but 100 inside and huge kitchen. Um, you know, we would regularly run six to 10 people in that kitchen and there was just no way to use that space and the staff we had to do limited, you know, to go. And uh, I think a lot of people don't understand it, it wasn't just being able to do business or not being able to do business. It was being able to do business as you had done since the genesis of your business. You can't just change the way a restaurant runs overnight and have it be successful. Yeah, the whole idea so, of like opening back up with only 25% capacity, that, that's a losing right. business model. Like, Why would you do it? Yeah, yeah my, my rent at that time, rent and taxes were $18,000 a month. You know, you, you throw utilities on there and insurance and everything else. And like our overhead was 40K a month. Plus, you can't make 40K a month selling fucking burgers and chicken wings to go out of a huge building like that. Mm-hmm. Not to mention when people can't drink beer in a bar and you've pivoted to a draft only brewery because of all the shit that went down with your distributors, we were just completely screwed. There was no way to make that model work. The first PPP loan that came through, you know, I still somehow was a rule follower at that point and it really didn't apply to us. So I didn't apply for it. And then of course they changed all the rules and then they forgave it. So that was a huge mistake. It's another little nugget of advice. If the government offers you money, (laughs) fucking take it. And then once you get it, decide whether or not you really need to use it, but never pass up an opportunity for a grant or anything that potentially comes without interest in particular. You can always give it Um, back. Yeah, no matter what. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we did get approved for the EIDL loan for 150,000 and the SBA lost it. It took me two years to convince them that I didn't actually get 150K from them. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they were days away from sending me to collections when I finally was able to prove to them. I'm like, I I don't know what else I need to do other than like, you you see the account that you said you sent the money to. It's not my account. Here are my bank statements. I never got the money. I would love the money, but I definitely didn't get it. Uh, I had to pay them a hundred dollar processing fee to terminate the loan just to rub some So other than the $10,000 EIDL grant, we never got a penny in government funding. So that was obviously real difficult, too. I had a handshake deal with our landlords at the time to basically move into a much smaller, like 3,500 square foot section of the building. The idea was to keep the brewery running, set up a little speakeasy style tasting room in the back where I would do bread and charcuterie and, you know, smoke meats, the things that I'm good at. And my wife and I could kind of run it together on the weekends. And then I would do production. Largely contract brewing was the idea out of the brewery space. And three days after we made that handshake deal, we got an eviction notice. (laughs) Yeah. Why? Yeah. Uh, Apparently they thought that flipping that building would be a lot easier than it was. Still empty this day, though they did finally sell it last year. But it, it sat empty and unsold for two years. Uh, and then they, they sold it, I, I want to say, six or $700,000 under what it appraised at when they bought it. They decided to evict you and sell it with no lease and no tenant, and I thought that would be more valuable? Yeah. That's actually stupid. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, um, you know, aside from the community instantly hating these people, yeah, I lost them 
huge, huge sum of money. So in the 30 days that I had to clear out a 10,000 square foot restaurant and brewery that we had occupied for now 11 years because they would not give me extra time. (laughs) Yeah. I met the new owners of Kalapuya, Caitlin and Chris, two awesome people who have been instrumental in us surviving this ordeal. Caitlin had stopped by to ask some questions, just general brewery stuff. They they had ran a, a small distillery, Vivacity Spirits, which they still run. And she was just asking me some questions about this brew house they had just bought. And they very much bought this brewery thinking it was like this great turnkey step in. We're going to make great beer. They had probably the most archaic and dangerous brew house in the state. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, their 15 barrel kettle was two sevens welded together vertically with no modifications to the firebox. Hmm. They just put a bigger torch in it. They being the previous fabricators of this glorified kitchen kettle. There was like a, a inch thick layer of carbon that was just it, like a, a structural part of the kettle by that point. The thing was a nightmare. It had a built-in stainless ladder that you had to climb down to scoop hops out one bucket at a time. Wow. It's going to kill at some point. So... You know, I said, I'm in this crazy nightmare situation where I I don't have a building for my brewery. You're in the situation where you just bought this business, but you're finding out that you have this wildly inefficient, terrible brew house. What if we lease backed my brew house to you and you allow me to operate on an AP out of your building on that equipment until it's paid off? And that's essentially what we ended up doing and how New Springs started. The only difference being the OLCC, when we told them, we've got this building, it's got a distillery, a winery, a brewery, two contract distillers, a contract winery, and we'd like to add an AP to it. And they basically said, like, yeah, that's technically doable, but we don't want to do it. That's going to be really hard. So (laughs) think of something else. Seems like a lot of paperwork, bro. Maybe he can think of another option. Yeah. Well, and in retrospect, thank God they didn't want to fuck with it because what I ended up pitching them was like, what if Kalapuya contract brews New Spring, but I'm also an employee of Kalapuya, and I'm the Kalapuya employee that contract brews all of the beer for the company that I own? <laughs> and they said, sounds great. It's contract brewed, so as long as all of the money is processed through Kalapuya, you're good to go. You don't need any additional licensing. It's just Kalapuya beer, legally speaking. So that's what we did, and it ended up being incredibly mutually beneficial because we don't have to have set hours in the brew house. Danny can yeah. be kegging California beer while I'm brewing new spring beer because it's all legally the same brewery. I can still sell my own product. I can still do everything. Just checks go to Kalapuya. And then once they process it, that's when I get paid. You know, that part of the business has, has worked out very well. Our first packaging day and our first beer ever sold was January 6th, 2021, a day that I'm sure no one remembers. We like to celebrate our anniversary in the spring, I think for obvious reasons. I think I had like a hundred missed calls halfway through the packaging run. We took a break and I I like to see these text messages from my dad like, yeah, so they're storming the Capitol. What are you doing today? (laughs) Trying to get this business off the ground. Give me, I'll call you back later. Yeah, yeah. No shit. Turns out no one was really thinking about beer on that day. So I think I probably know the answer, but I am curious because you had to at least made a conscious decision. Did you consider moving the uh, original Flat Tail brewery name there, or was that even not a consideration at all? By that time, not really. We had actually already come up with a New Spring name 
prior to this happening. Once we were shut down and I thought I had this deal to, you know, downsize the brewery and keep producing, I was working with my buddy from Two Town Cider House and we had this last minute scheme to like, what if we contract brew beer for essentially like a Two Towns labeled beer product? And that was where we came up with a new spring name. And that was originally going to be a product sold through them because of the timing of the eviction and how long it took us to get back going. That ended up not being feasible, but they're good enough fellas that they gave us all the branding, gave us the artwork that they had come up with, everything. And to me, two two big ones. Number one, the last two years in business were not good for the flat tail name. You know, there was no money going into the pub. Uh, it was myself and my friends and the Johnstons and, uh, <laughs> a significant number of two town staff that came over and like did a, a quick remodel on the place for the first time in five years. <laughs> uh, so while we were kind of trying to move forward and refresh the business, we, we did it all right before COVID hit. So we were never really able to reap those benefits. And I wanted a fresh start from a branding standpoint. Um, also Anyone that's ever met me knows that I, I can't tell the difference between a fucking touchdown and a safety. I have zero interest in football. I'm not a baseball guy. I'm not a basketball guy. I, I watch like Grand Prix motorcycle racing and I used to play water polo in high school and like rugby. So the the traditional American sports bar thing was the antithesis of anything I would have done on my own. And this just seemed like this is the time for this brand to better reflect me because I've been the guy behind the beer for so long. And now and for the entirety of New Spring, with very little exception, you know, I, I've been back to the only guy. I brew the beer. I deliver the beer. I work with the same graphic artist we've always had. But I come up with all of the label ideas. You know, I I'm the one doing this whole brand. I wanted it to at least reflect my personality a little bit. And, you know, when when my wife and I have a rare free time, we're not going to Vegas. We're not going up to Portland. We go out into the middle of the woods. You know, we we camp every New Year's Day. We camp every Christmas. Uh, we snowshoe. We backpack. We take our dogs out like that's me. That's us. So new spring both kind of evokes nature and also obviously uh is a not so subtle subtle um allusion to to a brand new beginning so it was like you know it was the same llc it, it was the same really ethos uh to the type of beers that we would be producing but the name and the brand just finally fit yeah well i thought didn't you make some changes too to line up like now you make uh, West Coast IPAs with Carapils in it and like hazy IPAs and lactose because I'm just about everything that you make. Um, Fuck out of here with these uh, Carapils <laughs> and lactose. Uh, <laughs> I did come across some comments you may or may not have made about those things and I agree with you on all fronts. So Yeah, and I, I did change some things for sure, but I also didn't. You know, the perfect example being like I, I made a smoothie sour, which very proud of for what it is, uh, still kills me a little on the inside. You know, I think I've maybe personally consumed five or six pints of that in my life. Uh, but I wasn't just going to dump a bunch of lactose into the kettle and do a kettle sour because that I can cater to what the market wants, but I can't completely sell my soul. There's still very much is that part of me that got into this because I fucking love beer and, and I do. I still do. 
beer and brewing beer is not the part of this that that ruined the industry for me for such a long time it was a <laughs> cleverly crafted group of douchebags uh and i've been able to kind of separate that so you know when i did my dessert sour instead of you know a bunch of lactose and a kettle sour and some fruit flavoring uh and i'm gonna give away some secrets today so oh so help me god i better at least get a fucking tweet or x or whatever the fuck it is now if you use this technique um i use live lacto in all of my dessert sours they finish uh between 1024 and 1028 so you know tons of residual sugar but i use all naturally derived fruit sorbitol to get that unfermentable sugar mm-hmm. so you know i'm not going to give away all the secrets but there are a lot of fruits that in juice or let's say hypothetically house made concentrated juice have huge amounts of natural sorbitol you know the same stuff we refine to uh sweeten diet pepsi with it's unfermentable the naturally occurring version has none of the scary health shit that comes along with the refined stuff that they put in sodas and I was able to create a shelf-stable, unpasteurized, live lacto dessert sour that finished just as sweet as all the other ones. Um, That was fun. Sold great for a minute. You know, $300 half barrels and $25 four packs are awesome. Uh, But in in the very recent um, market, even that, you know, there, there are a handful of breweries that, absolutely still kill it with their chunky exploding cans and i don't think that will ever change but it's not as buzzy as it used to be and even more so when you've only got four products that you're selling to the market at a time and three of those are 250 to 350 dollars for a half barrel and the vast majority of the clients you sell to are also struggling financially Mm -hmm. that's not a model Um, And I was just seeing, you know, where normally if I would release a new sour, the first 20 kegs are out the door like that. Now it's like, you know, five or six and then a handful of kegs a week. And that's about it. Uh, So I recently this summer decided it's it's time for another big pivot. And uh, I love brewing and drinking wild ales, particularly fruited mixed culture and uh, non-fruited oak aged. But that wasn't keeping me afloat anymore. So logically, I needed to basically clone Coors because that's what anyone would do, right? Uh, light loggers have been making a, a big comeback uh, among indie breweries and craft breweries in general. But I noticed two two immediate things. One, a lot of people are, are, are bad at making light lager because it's a really difficult style to brew. There's nowhere to hide. Um, you fuck one thing up, it, it gets magnified, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and sanitation is just insanely important brewing a light lager because that shit will sour in three days if there's anything in there. Um, and the the other thing that hit me was the price point. Uh, you know, people are selling 15 fives of craft light lager for a buck 60, buck 70, buck 80 a keg. <laughs> and you'll sell a couple of those in the summer as like a fun kind of novelty thing, but you're not going to get permanent handles and you're not going to sell that year round for that price. So I I sat down and just started costing different things out. And, uh, you know, one of my immediate realizations was like, 
I can't do an American light lager because I, I'm not going to do a 15 PSI two week lager. They taste like shit. Plus everyone else is already doing them. Um, so it occurred to me like, what, why does it have to be a lager? You know, one of my, one of my favorite stereotypical shit beers has always been Genesee cream ale. <laughs> you know, the, the classic cream ale is not like this dark malty flaked barley or lactose debacle that, that most people think it is. It's, it's essentially an American light lager with an ale yeast. It's like the Kulsh of American light lagers. So I started brewing this, you know, 20% corn, 5% rice, a little bit of cane sugar in there because I love cane sugar as a fermentable uh, with an ale yeast. And, you know, that that beer is kettle to keg in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And I can net the same amount selling a 15.5 for $140 as I can selling a half barrel of, you know, my Marionberry peppercorn sour for 320 And it doesn't take two months plus to produce that beer. Uh, or six weeks Andy, to sell it, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's the other thing is, you know, I, I can sell through, uh, you know, my new light ale. I call it an American light ale. Um, it's called Sploot Light. No, it's not like some weird sex thing. Splooting is that adorable thing dogs and squirrels do when they're really hot and they stretch their legs out in front and behind <laughs> at the same time. That's a sploot. Uh, so, I, you know, I've been selling this beer for like two and a half, three months now. And I mean, I, I have three bars in Corvallis that do a couple kegs a week. I haven't had multiple keg a week permanent handles in a long time as a tiny brewer that, you know, does all of these, this weird esoteric shit. So, you know, I still brew the fun beers. I've got, you know, a chocolate almond Imperial Porter. I've got a mixed culture, wet hop, sour Saison. I've uh, got an 11% alcohol, Pilsner based, uh, brute golden strong fermented with champagne yeast at 48 for two months, finished with house made Noyo extract and almond flour, simple syrup. And I'll sell a keg a week of that. And that's fine because now I have something that I can sell 15 kegs a week of, mm-hmm. you know, and these are very small numbers. If you're wondering if this sounds small, yes, it is. I have two tanks. I, I can at max produce about 30 barrels a month. So I, I am teeny tiny. You know, this is, this is not my only job anymore, <laughs> but uh, that whole just paradigm shift is something that I've had to do a lot, but it, it, thankfully has been successful and weirdly enough it's it's this return to you know before we even started uh the original brewery as far as stylistically you know what i'm producing the most of now that's kind of brought us back yeah that's cool well so what do you think are some of the big lessons that you've learned through this uh brewing career uh you've been through a lot you've been through ups and downs and some shit that human beings should have no business being exposed to. So I, I got to think that you've got some, uh, not just baggage, but some positive things to share. Totally. Um, you know, it's hard not to immediately just go to talking about what a negative outcome being so laser focused had. Uh, but in retrospect, I, I don't think the advice is to not be laser focused and not be passionate and driven about what you are good at. I think that's a great thing to do but you have to have 
those checks and balances that we talked about earlier. You have to have that third party accountant. You have to have a basic understanding of how business financials work. It doesn't matter how great the opportunity you think is in front of you. Take a goddamn night class. Do something. Pick up business for dummies. Whatever it is, get to the point where you can understand what's going on in your business, not just the product you're making, not just what the customers think, how popular you are, but you you have to have a financial understanding of the business you're doing, and you have to have a third party verifying that. That is, if nothing else is taken away, that. Um, in today's market, you have to also be able to pivot and, and do so with, with some kind of an educated guess, at least, you know, selling beer right now for anyone who owns a brewery, uh, they know it's, it's not easy. Uh, this is not 2013 where you can fill up the back of a pickup truck and drive around town until it's empty. You, you need to have something that sets you apart. Why is your brewery different? from every other brewery on your block. And if your brewery is opening up with a bunch of other breweries on the block, why the fuck are you opening your brewery there? There are tons of places that are not saturated still, yet somehow everyone who wants to open a brewery wants to do it in downtown Portland or Corvallis or Eugene or, you know, Austin. Find an area where not only can you benefit from a greater piece of the pie, but where the community can benefit from you being there. You know, we, as, as craft brewers, we spend so much time talking about like what we're going to do for the community and how beer gives back and all of that. Well, you can start that process by not being competition for the guy who's already struggling to clear his tanks. Uh, th- there was a long time where we all had this like, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats kind of outlooks. And that's great. But it just doesn't exist in Oregon. Most of Oregon, most of Washington, most of California, you know, the West Coast and and a huge percentage of the national market are completely saturated. Find a place where you can be happy that needs a brewery that doesn't already have 20 and pick that spot. And, you know, you, you should be looking at the demographics. You should be looking at existing restaurants over there. Um, use every piece of information you can get and also have a clearly defined vision. You know, our vision changed every year. You know, I wanted to be Sierra Nevada. Then I realized, actually, that's <laughs> that's a lot of work. And, <laughs> and you get to a point where you're never picking up the mash paddle because you spend every day on the phone with distributors and clients and, uh, you know, managers from Albertsons. And that's, that's not fun. Uh, that may be something that does it for you, but it wasn't what did it for me. And I wished that I had spent more time exploring why I wanted to have a giant brewery, not just trying to make a giant brewery. Yeah. Well, so that's a big lesson to learn. And I think one major question I have for you before you tell us where we can find all of this amazing new spring beer online. But uh, one big question I have is you you clearly, previous to this interview, I expected there to be a little more anger and negativity. And you're 
definitely positive. You not only went through some of the worst bullshit you could think of with owning a brewery and having business partners, but you still have a brewery. You started over. You're still innovating. You're still creating new things, and you're still sound excited about it. Uh, you mentioned your wife. I imagine she's part of that. But how have you managed to stay not just healthy but sane in general uh, through this whole process? Barely would be the short <laughs> answer. Uh, True. I've only known you for two hours. I don't know what the fuck's going to happen when we get off here. But <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, as as you mentioned, having a, a partner to go through this with uh, would be the biggest one. And and not everyone is that lucky. And you know, marriages are ruined over this kind of thing. And, and that makes sense. Um, but for me, prior to the week of trial, I definitely w- was at a very, very low point. You know, you, I, I was used to working crazy hours for essentially my entire adult life. I mean, I, I started working half time when I was 14 giving drum lessons. I worked full time at a fucking blockbuster starting at 16 while I was finishing high school. I don't know what it's like to not work all the time. Eventually you just can't keep doing that and still maintain any semblance of of mental and emotional health. And I was at a point where running new spring full time, working a second full time, uh, consulting job and also being the the main guy handling the entire lawsuit because I was the only one also running the business with these people. Um, and it, it wore me down to a place that's hard to describe. I mean, I, I gained 50 pounds uh, from when Flat Tail shut down up until I think last year when I lost 50 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> In stress weight, in like, uh, I think I lost 20 pounds in two weeks uh, prior to the trial. Yeah. And it's so easy to be consumed by that negativity. And there's nothing I can say, you know, if you're in a situation like this, to undo that. The advice I can give, though, is the more you work and the harder things are, the easier it is to stop prioritizing yourself. And the less and less you do that, the more you lose yourself. You, you, you stop even recognizing who you are and, and you become just this thing that exists to win a lawsuit, this thing that exists to brew beer, this thing that exists to wake up, go to work, come home, sometimes go to sleep. And do it all over again. I mean, I, I absolutely got to a point where I just felt like a shadow of myself. Um, and when we when we won the lawsuit, obviously everything is not okay. Everything is not done. We're even broker than we were before we won the lawsuit. And I'm still working constantly. But the difference is that brief moment of elation, that brief moment of of feeling human again was life-changing uh that night i mean i cried more than i have cried in the 10 years previous to the night we won the trial just tears of fucking joy and i remember before trial talking to a close friend of mine and and telling him like 
I don't know what it feels like to be happy anymore. I have no concept of what it feels like to exist without anxiety. My entire being is is negative. Even in moments where I'm where I'm outwardly happy, there's this, you know, I always talk about like the, the anvil on your heart. And when that anvil gets so heavy you can't lift it, it's very difficult to move past that. And and I guess <laughs> I haven't gotten to the bright spot yet, um, <laughs> but <laughs> just that that brief moment, even though it was only a couple of weeks where we really actually felt like things were going to be over, it it was a reset, and it reminded me what it felt like to be human again, and getting that taste, that little bit of freedom, that little bit of Dave again. I was back in the brew house, brewing fucking jamming out to shitty 80s tunes got my wham playing in the background having an awesome time feeling like that kid behind the six barrel again and not just at work but at, at home you know suddenly I, i'm coming home and instead of just like how was your shitty day yeah everything's terrible let's grab a beer uh you know it's like okay shit's still hard but we remember who we are and let's hold on to that and, you know, I, I'm still, you know, I, I'm trying to make sure I take at least two weekends off a month. Doesn't always happen. But we we have identified the things that take us back to zero. And for us, like I mentioned, you know, that's going out into the woods. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to say, you're working 90 hours this week. We can't go camp. But just... Stop it. <laughs> Don't do that. Whatever it takes, get out. Do that thing that you need to do to be you. So, you know, I'll, I'll finish brewing at 8, 9 p.m. on a Friday. And as soon as Emma's off work, she gets the forerunner packed. And we'll set up our, our hammocks, you know, out in the middle of the woods at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning. And then we wake up the next day. And we have one day. One perfect fucking amazing day to be together out in the woods fishing hiking biking playing with the dog whatever we're doing that reminds us of who we are and who we can be and and that's that's an incredibly important one is is don't forget who you are but also <laughs> i'm not going to say everything gets better because sometimes things don't you know, we may still get totally fucked at the end of this, but at least in my mind and in my heart, I know who I can be. I know who we can be. And that's something that I didn't have for years and years. So, you know, sitting here tonight, I'm not going to say I don't still get panic attacks sometimes. I, I still have huge amounts of anger, obviously. Lots of anger. Uh, but... But I also remember who I am, why I got into this, what makes me tick, and and I am not willing to ever let go of the idea that things can be good again. Man, I think it's important that 
even that you're not at the end of the fucking trail, but that you're taking those times to do those things because that, there's a big part of it. And, and we definitely did that during some of the struggle periods for us where you just, you forget to, to live today, even though you're not done. You're like, Oh, well, when we finally have that good month or when the brewery finally gets to X or, you know, we finish the lawsuit, then we'll take a week off. We'll go out to the wilderness when, when you can have a fucking day here and there and you can still live your life during instead of waiting to live your life. Cause the other side of that, like you said, that day may not come. So then you've just wasted it. Like, yeah. You know, you could have that great you know, day. So get your shit together, pony boy. I mean, tomorrow is tomorrow and that's all we've got sometimes. Uh, you know, it, just don't let it slip away. And, and just because you can't take a week off, don't say, well, I'm not going to take a day off, you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's all I got. All right. Well, that's a good message from, from the new spring brewings, new mantra. Yeah. Um, but yeah, speaking of which, how do we find you? Like where I assume you distribute mostly in your immediate area, but if someone wants to try yeah. the beer, someone wants to find you online, what do they do, Dave? So only Oregon. Um, I do not have a website. <laughs> okay. I have an Instagram that I have actually kept up to date for at least two weeks. Um, I, I just actually packaged my first canned beer in ages today. And uh, <laughs> we could do a whole other episode on additional bad choices that I'm really good at making. I, I actually just packaged Raptor Princess IPA today. Uh, I'm not keeping any of the profit from this beer. <laughs> Long story short, uh, one of my hobbies is kind of uh, obsessively monitoring the weird, wacko white nationalist movement that unfortunately exists in this country. And through uh, some buddies and a podcast, I ended up getting to know online uh, Erica Leslie Ash, the lead plaintiff from the Sandy Hook Alex Jones trial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, there's some light reading for the day. Yeah. 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 And this fucking superhero of a woman, um, after winning, you know, this massive defamation trial and going through everything she went through, was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer two months after the verdict. And hopefully this isn't a glimpse into my future, but she is still waiting for a single penny of the hundreds of millions of dollars that Jones owes her and the rest of the plaintiffs in the meantime she has like 30 plus thousand dollars a month in medical bills mm. so uh if you want packaged product you can find rapper princess ipa it'll be at uh, market of choices uh fairly soon new seasons and then also all of the local accounts you know common fields always has our cans and corvallis um as far as everything else uh primarily draft you know corvallis we're all over town common fields Brass Monkey, Beer Library, Murphy's, Squirrels. Uh, I'm going to forget to mention so many accounts. Tacos on Machine, uh, Colonist here, great Syrian restaurant. And this is this is the thing that everyone says, but if you want new spring beer, please, for the love of God, ask for it. Um, I cannot work a second job, brew all the beer, deliver all the beer, and also have enough time to be in the market multiple days a week. So I'm very limited in in my scope and reach. So the best thing you can do for our brand um, is if you're drinking in Oregon and you'd like to see our beer, let the bartender politely, very politely, know that you would love to see some new spring beer. 
And if you've got just a shit ton of money uh, burning a hole in your pocket, you can also Google Flat Tail GoFundMe and help fund our legal fund. All right. I like that. So uh, I cannot even begin to thank you enough. And when I said I wasn't going to get to it all, I feel like I've got about an hour and a half more content that I could get to that I'm going to have to let you go for the evening so you can get back to your lovely wife and explore your life. But I want to thank you for taking the time to go through that, you know, like, most of the stories I tell on this podcast, not easy. There's a lot going on, very emotional, and I really, really appreciate it, as do I'm sure my audience. Absolutely, and thanks for having me. I mean, this is such a, I mean, it's fucked up that you have to have this podcast or that you can have this podcast, but it is so important. Um, so much of the industry is all just glitter, and uh, everyone in the industry is great, and beer is awesome, and I, I don't think people realize how tough this is and what it really takes to uh to make it work so you're you're doing god's work man good stuff i appreciate it some days it's easier than others but yeah but, uh... i believe that <laughs> Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always opening to answering questions and helping in any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Danbury. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a Danbury. Free play. Media. Media.